I'm Steve Shepard. Welcome to my podcast, The Natural Curiosity Project, and to the third episode in our series with my friend Scott Luria, who's riding his bike across the United States on a one-year, 15,000-mile journey of discovery. In this episode, we caught up with him at a small hotel in Erie, Pennsylvania. He had just gotten to his room, having entered the lobby five minutes before, after an entire day of riding in the rain and looking like a very large, drowned muskrat. The hotel manager took pity on him and gave him a great rate on a room. The last time we checked in with you, (laughs) you were in Syracuse and you had traveled 350 miles. Where are you now and how far have you gone? I'm in Erie, Pennsylvania. I finally left the Empire State after 17 days. I kind of went as far as you can go in the state of New York. And I'm walking over to the bike odometer right now to see what the, what the number is. Um, I went 50 miles today, and my total mileage is 720 miles exactly. Wow. Wow. So you've basically doubled your – you're averaging about 350 a week. That's pretty good. Uh, I guess that's true, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. I, I think I told you I had uh, two down days when I talked to you last, and a third – quote-unquote, down day, where all I did was walk around Niagara Falls, New York, and not use the bike at all. So if you take those days out, the average miles per day is higher. But I I haven't done the math. You know, if you take my overall rate, including all the stops, you know, whatever 720 divided by 17 is, I have to go figure it out. But anyway, it's about 40 miles a day, 40 to 50 miles a day. That's great. That's great. So what's, what has happened of interest since the last time we chatted? You always ask me, you know, what was the single most intriguing people I have met? And I do have, a, I do have somebody to tell you about. But whenever I do, I think, oh, shoot, there are so many other people I've talked to, and it's, it's hard to rank them on, you know, most intriguing. But see, I visited my cousin in Rochester. That was great fun. Somebody I hadn't seen in 14 years, and it was great to to intrude in her life. She is a very busy academic. Uh, she's president of the faculty senate of a small college in Rochester called Nazareth College and unbelievably busy right now under the term, you know, a COVID term. Uh, and so she is up to her eyebrows and work. And here I am showing up smelly in, 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 her, uh, in her living room, you know, uh, wanting to crash for the night. And she was utterly gracious, even though I could tell it was hard for her to make the time. But I guess the most important and the most intriguing couple I met was the day after I talked to you in Syracuse. I might have in- mentioned that I was going to spend the next night at one of these warm showers uh, places. Do you remember that from last time, Steve? I do, absolutely. These are, uh, this is a website where bike tourists open up their homes to other bike tourists. The official deal is it's just you know a place to camp in their backyard and you can use their bathroom. But the two that I've already stayed at I got served breakfast and dinner to to die for and uh, had the most wonderful time chatting with, you know, these fascinating people. And this last couple was really fascinating. I mentioned it in my blog, but uh, they are a couple of retired environmental engineers who came from Washington, D.C. after working for the EPA. One was a uh, mechanical engineer who was involved with EPA enforcement. And the other was a nuclear engineer who was involved with, uh, you know, regulation of uh, nuclear sites. And anyway, that was their career. Uh, they were their career government workers. But the whole 9-11 thing kind of shook them up. 
Uh, and they realized, because if you remember, the Pentagon was a target and the Capitol was supposed to be a target. If, if that Flight 93 hadn't been brought down in Pennsylvania, it would have hit the Capitol, which was pretty darn close to where they were working. And they just sort of realized, wait a minute, you know, we really believe in the environment and we're advocating from it from a bureaucratic perspective, but how about uh, doing it a different way? So they retired early, quit their jobs, and uh, bought an abandoned farmhouse in upstate New York, right on the route, and completely renovated it, I mean, in a very tasteful way. Turned it into a sustainable farm um, where they, they make 80% of the food that they, that they eat. And uh, they also compost everything. Uh, they have solar power and a well, and they have, they're basically off the grid. They feed their solar power into the grid. And uh, they, they give more than they get, so they wind up having free power for the year, even on the cloudy days. Because they're both scientists and engineers, they had set up in this irrigation system and these, uh, these orchids and uh, almost every type of grain. They were raising chickens, hogs, cattle, uh, goats, uh, geese. Um, and so they had all their own eggs. And it was amazing. And uh, they cooked me an incredible meal completely from the farm. I mean, you've heard about farm to table. This was right on the premises, farm to table. And in the morning I had oatmeal like I've never had in my life. The best thing was talking about their adventures, biking you know, around the, uh, the world. They have a tandem. They have actually three tandems. So lots of great stories, wonderful home. I slept in a four-poster bed. I marveled at their uh, high-tech kitchen that was integrated into this beautifully restored farmhouse. It was just a dream of a day. What a what a cool opportunity. And I was going to ask you, these are not the same people who you mentioned last week that do not bike, but their sister does. This is a different couple. That is correct. This is a completely different couple. It, they were um, halfway between Syracuse and Rochester. But funny, you mentioned about the sister. I wound up meeting her too. She lives sort of halfway between this recent couple and my cousin in Rochester and she offered me her place also, even without me asking, but because the first couple had mentioned me to the sister, she said, oh, I'm, you know, if, if you're in Fairport, that's the name of the town between the two, uh, you know, I'm happy to put you up. Well, um, I was spending that very night with my cousin, so I, I already had accommodations, but I did meet her for lunch, and she has biked across the country and up the entire East Coast from Key West, Florida to Fort Kent, Maine, uh, and she had all kinds of... Uh, advice and tips about the specifics of biking cross country and these long distance trips. So uh, I met with her for an hour and I could have talked to her all afternoon, but I was, I was due at my cousin's that very evening. So it was only for an hour. So in this last segment, have you run across any cool, interesting sites, uh, attractions, I mean, the, I've gotten so many comments, Scott, about your accidental visit to the Yellow Brick Road town uh, where L. Frank Baum <laughs> was born. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Any, anything in particular that stands out since then? I, I have so many. I have, to, I, have, I have to edit it down, uh, Steve. I don't know if you looked at the blog, but I spent a whole day at Niagara Falls. And by Niagara Falls, I don't mean the one that everybody goes to, the Canadian side where all the tourist attractions are. I went to the American side because you can't cross into Canada. So I've never been to that side. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? I have several times, actually. It's amazing. It's amazing. But you may know that the, you know, uh, because of the bend in the river, the falls don't face America at all. They face Canada. 
And the more spectacular of the two waterfalls, Horseshoe Falls, which gets 90% of the water, um, is on the Canadian side of, of the river. So everybody goes to Canada uh, because that's, the, that's the, the killer view of the falls. And because of that, Canada has, uh, well, you've been there, they have completely gone, quote unquote, American, meaning that they have an incredible uh, riot of hotels, observation towers, Ferris wheels, tourist attractions. Uh, I don't know if you've been to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, in the Great Smokies, but it's just like that, you know, just a real sort of vulgar riot of uh, tourist trappy kind of places. And this is in Canada, genteel, sweet, low-key Canada. And ironically, on the other side of the river, because uh, the American side only gets a sidelong view of the falls, they have not had much development at all. And there's a couple of uh, older hotels and it's very genteel and low key. So it was hilarious because the roles were reversed and Canada looked like America and America looked like Canada. For the first time, I looked around on the American side of the falls and uh, you'll see on my blog, it was actually quite cool. There was a number of neat things. Uh, you get a different perspective from that side. You only see it from the side, but I kind of walked on about a six mile loop in my quest to get a good view of the falls. And what I finally wound up doing was uh, I did wind up crossing the border a little bit. There's a, there's a big bridge, Rainbow Bridge, you probably remember it, that connects the two sides. And that's the only place where you get kind of in front of the falls and you can see them. And uh, I walked up to the, the customs gate and there's all these signs saying, no, non-essential travel, border closed, COVID. But I pushed on the gate and actually it, it, it was like a subway turnstile. It, it turned and you, it couldn't go back, but I think, huh, can I go through? And there's concertina wire everywhere. And it looks like, a, you know, like an armed camp, like Checkpoint Charlie or something. But I uh, pushed the button to talk to the customs agent. He said, sure, you can go through as long as you've got, you know, you have to go through customs to go back. So I walked um, halfway across the bridge right to the U.S.-Canada border and put my toe over the line and uh, got a, a, a pretty good picture of the falls finally because I was out in the middle of the river and then came back and went through customs. It's kind of funny because... I was born in Germany. My dad was in the CIA and they kind of gave me the hairy eyeball, but I did have all my papers in order, which means I had one of those Vermont enhanced driver's licenses. And they let, they let me in after about two minutes of talking. So it worked out fine. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm in my head. I'm hearing the East German accent asking you for your papers. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, that's where we were in, in, in Berlin. You know, my, my dad would, uh, cross over into the East Berlin all the time and had to deal with Checkpoint Charlie exactly many times. So uh, I was only six years old at the time, so I have no memory of it. But uh, yeah, it was kind of funny. It kind of brought that back. So what's up for the rest of the week? Where are you headed directionally? Well, um, now I finally finished the Erie Canal. And if you follow the blog, my, my route was quite circuitous. It meandered back and forth trying to stay on the canal and, and get back to the same point of the canal where I departed. So I wound up, um, uh, in order to get to Buffalo, which is only about 320 direct miles from Burlington, I wound up going almost 700 miles. Um, and now, finally, um, I'm done with all that, and I'm, I'm making a beeline straight across Ohio uh, to the first of the state high points that are my, my destination for this trip. I don't know if we mentioned this last time. In addition to going across the country and around the country, I'm trying to climb all of the state high points I haven't climbed yet. The first one I haven't climbed is Lofty Campbell Hill in Ohio, uh, a, a whopping 1,500 feet, 
And it's, it's a little grassy hill behind a boat rehab center in Bellefontaine, Ohio. Uh, so that's my first actual destination. And from there, I go to Wapakoneta, Ohio, which you may recall is where Neil Armstrong was born. So they have a little Armstrong Museum that I want to see. And then on to Hoosier High Point, the highest point of Indiana. And then on to Chicago and up to Wisconsin and doing the high points of Wisconsin, Minnesota, and uh, Michigan, crossing Lake Superior via Isle Royale, the national park there in the middle of Lake Superior. So that's the short-term agenda. And I don't know the timing of all of it, but that's, that's the basic route that I'm taking now. That's great. So one last question, and I know that there will not always be an answer to this one because it's pretty introspective, but any key observations, learnings, realizations that you've had in since we last talked? I will tell you something a little bit challenging about this. I, the same couple that I stayed with when I was telling you about the, um, the engineers who had renovated the farmhouse, one of them had gotten the vaccine and the other one, um, the, the man had said, haven't gotten it, won't get it. So I realized he was not going to get the vaccine. And immediately I was torn because the doctor in me, the scientist in me, was like biting my tongue, you know, trying to explain to him why it's so important, you know, and, and why uh, all the reasons why uh, the people who are against the vaccine are, are misinformed and actually putting all of us at risk by making it that much harder to get herd immunity. So that was on the one level. On the other level was my determination from the beginning as I start to enter the red state parts of this country not to proselytize. My creed is keep your ears open and your mouth shut. I want to hear from people. I, I don't want to impose my views on uh, other people. This was a real dilemma for me because when the woman was showing me around the farm and mentioning how frustrated she was that her husband wouldn't take the vaccine, I could tell she kind of wanted me to maybe lean on her husband a little bit, you know, and because I'm a doctor and appeal to the, he's a nuclear engineer for heaven's sake, he's a scientist himself, you know, appeal to his scientific background and maybe try to talk him into it. But I balked at that. I was just concerned that to do that would introduce conflict in somebody who was opening up his home to me. I still feel somewhat conflicted about it. You know, should I have pushed harder? I didn't, but um, I imagine it's going to come up. And I'm not quite sure how to come down on that because I really don't want to impose my views on others. I want to hear from them. Well, I'm sure it won't be the last. And I guess, you know, I guess the one observation I would make is that, you know, ever since the country became so horrifically polarized over the last, you know, at least four to five years, longer than that, really, I have been striving really hard to understand not to convince necessarily, you know, kind of in the same spirit that you just mentioned, but I would love to understand. I, I get that there are people who don't have the scientific background to be able to make a determination for themselves, or they, they are, you know, of the mind that says, I'm going to go with the people's beliefs that surround me because I'm, you know, I, I don't have the wherewithal to make my own decision, whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, but there's always an explanation and you're absolutely right. And I think you made the right decision. You know, you're not going to convince people. And all we can do is listen. And perhaps if they ask, offer a different perspective, just like you're taking in a different perspective by talking to these folks. I think that's the important thing. I think you're exactly right, Steve. I, I'm, I'm happy to answer if they ask me, but I'm not going to push it on people. Um, I must say I'm intrigued by your new book. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but 
I understand that's part of the theme of your new book. Yeah, you know, I, I, I needed a trope that I could use to cause this whole thing to happen. And what I really wanted to do was give people an opportunity to think about what could be. You know, what if we could set aside the politics and just be humans again and just be, you know, members of the same society and work for the common good? And it was a lot of fun to put together, a lot of fun to write. And I will tell you that I, I learned a lot in the process and I met a lot of really interesting people who are diametrically different than I am in terms of their belief structures. And yet, Scott, the funny thing is you'll, you'll find when you have time to read the book, the very last part of the appendix is the account of a conversation I had with someone who, interestingly, was in Ohio, of all places, as far right as you can get uh, by design. And I asked, I sent questions ahead of time. I said, I'm not trying to trap you. I just, I'd like to hear your answers to these questions. And they were not leading questions by any means, but they were things like, what scares you? Uh, what do you want for your children? What do you read? What do you do? Um, you know, those kinds of things. And I was pleasantly surprised to learn that well over 99% of our responses were essentially identical. How interesting. And that said a lot to me. Yeah. yeah. My goodness. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, that rings true to me, Steve. I, I haven't yet had that experience. I haven't had a chance to read your book yet, but I wouldn't be surprised at all to hear that. I, I really do believe that what made, quote unquote, to use a, a phrase, America great the first time was that kind of openness and willingness to uh, question the status quo, you know, that led to the revolution and all that. But it's funny, I, I adore my country, but I I'm very different from the people waving the flag, you know, in, in, in Red State America. And it, it sounds like, you know, what's the word from, um, it sounds so trite or kumbaya. You, you know, that Simon and Garfunkel song, uh, America, I've come to look for America. As trite as it sounds, that's a big part of this trip for me. Absolutely right. And that, interestingly, that's one of my favorite songs for exactly the same reasons. It's a, it, the song is a struggle. You know, the mm -hmm. song is a struggle trying to understand, and I, I listen to it fairly often for exactly the same reason. And, you know, Scott, I think you're probably going to hear a lot of really interesting stories along the way, and I look forward to you sharing them with us and, you know, hopefully generating some uh, understanding and insights that the rest of us wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to hear. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I hope I can rise to the challenge. You have certainly, what's the word, um, laid down the gauntlet with, with, with what you've done, Steve. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you, as I mentioned to you in an email, your whole progression uh, of, the, of your sign off from curiosity to uh, knowledge to uh, in, insight to um, I'm sorry, I skipped one, but it, it ends in understanding. If I can get there, I'll be a happy boy. Well, good. Well, you're you're our proxy, Scott, out there on the road. So I want to thank you, man. Once again, uh, travel safe this week and uh, we'll catch up to you again toward the end of the week. Thank you, Steve. Have a good week. Likewise, my friend. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did... I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode.